Our scripture reading today is taken from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 23, through chapter 11, verse 1. Again, 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 23, through chapter 11, verse 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question to the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Come on up, man. It's a great uh, privilege for me to introduce our preacher for today, Mr. Ben Nussbaum. Please hold your applause until after the sermon, if you would. Just teasing. Uh, yeah, Ben lives in Logan Square with Emma. They've been married just a couple of months, and uh, they're praying about starting an intentional Christian community there. Um, and it's our privilege to allow some of our pastoral residents to preach throughout the year. And so Ben is one of our pastoral residents. Really grateful for Ben. I've known Ben for about 27 years, um, which is pretty much his whole life. And he's really matured a lot since I first met him. Um, now, grateful for you, Ben. Here's a guy um, that loves people, loves God, and loves the word. So uh, may you be blessed through his preaching this morning. Thanks, Ben. He went for a handshake. I didn't, didn't shake his hand. Uh, John is ghostwriting LinkedIn bios from here on out. He, he ghostwrote uh, my LinkedIn bio with that little speech right there. So thank you for the intro. Um, it's really good to be with you all. Uh, Emma and I, we, yeah, as John noted, we've been married not very long. And one of the things that comes up frequently when we pray together is we're so thankful to God for this church community. Uh, so we're grateful for each and every person that makes up this body uh, and thankful that we have a home in Holy Trinity. Um, a few weeks back, actually, on the tail end of our honeymoon, uh, Emma and I, as well as my family, were riding out on a boat in northern Wisconsin. We were just out for a little afternoon cruise, and there were a bunch of boats anchored out on the lake at this one particular area of the lake where there's a sandbar. It was July 5th, so it's like, a, you know, just after Independence Day, all of the boats are still decorated with all sorts of Fourth of July garb and memorabilia. Uh, lots of American flags flying off the back of these boats. In fact, uh, lots of flags flying in general. There uh, were three flags in particular that I thought were interesting that I saw that day. There was a yellow Revolutionary Era War flag uh, that had a snake on it, 
and it said, don't tread on me. Uh, and I do confess that I had this very flag in my dorm room my freshman year because I thought it looked cool. I suppose uh, the people in Wisconsin on this particular day did not want people boarding their pontoon to take their brats. I can't be sure, but it said, don't tread on me. Uh, then the second flag flying was one that said, America, beating the British since 1776. Which, candidly, I don't think the British have really thought about in probably 200 years. But apparently the folks in northern Wisconsin care very much about that. But the last flag that I saw uh, was the flag that I was most struck by. Um, this flag, flying off of the back of this particular speedboat, said in big, bold red letters, No kings but us let freedom reign. No kings but us let freedom reign. And to many of our neighbors, that ideal, no kings but us, equals freedom. And perhaps rightfully so. Uh, we, we live in a country that prides itself on the freedom that it has secured on behalf of its citizens to, in essence, be your own king. Uh, our country's most famous document, the Declaration of Independence, promises the right to preserve that freedom for all of its people. But in a country of 330 million people, the concept of, three, uh, of freedom has about 330 million different definitions. What is freedom? Uh, for the folks in northern Wisconsin, freedom was defined as hanging out on an inner tube holding uh, a Bud Light. So that was freedom for them. Over the last couple of summers, uh, freedom was defined for many as the ability to go wherever you wanted without having to wear a mask. For many in our country, uh, their idea of freedom was shattered this past month with the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. Maybe freedom is something you cherish uh, because you come from a place with very few state-secured freedoms. Maybe freedom is simply the ability to privately enjoy your property and your family and your wealth. Maybe freedom's a myth. Uh, there are many imprisoned folks in our country who are rightfully skeptical of the way that our country defines freedom. Maybe it's just a feeling, maybe it's a reality. Point of fact is, there is a massive amount of confusion regarding what freedom is. And the definition of freedom is seemingly up for grabs in the court of American public opinion. So my question for you all is this, what's unique about Christian freedom. Uh, we live in a country where no kings but us let freedom reign. That may as well be the motto of the day. Um, freedom is, is constantly being claimed and reclaimed by everyone, regardless of uh, it being a blue state or a red state, um, regardless of age, race, gender, sexual orientation, or socioeconomic status. But regarding freedom, the Christians gathered here at Holy Trinity this morning ought to wonder aloud, do we, the followers of Jesus in this country, still have something to say about freedom? Just over 2,000 years ago in the city of Corinth, Paul wrote a letter to the Christians in the city about a number of different topics. And, you know, we've been tracing those topics in our sermon series, Church on Fire, for the last eight months. But at this point in the letter, he instructs the followers of Jesus to have something different and countercultural to say about freedom. He, he challenges them to have a, a bold vision, to stand out as unique and distinct 
in the middle of a city where freedom was also subjectively defined, as it is in America. In fact, uh, I'll just share this quick quote with you. One of the leading Roman philosophers of the day was uh, a man named Epictetus. And Epictetus was famous for asking the question, is freedom anything else than the right to live as we wish and nothing else? Sounds a little bit like no kings but us. Not much has changed in 2,000 years in terms of context because human beings for all of time, from Corinth to Chicago, have been trying to figure out what to do about freedom. So today, we again, we've got to ask the question, what is unique about Christian freedom? That's the question that we're going to be tracing this morning. Um, and my encouragement for us is that we humbly ask God to help us find the answer to that question, teach us through his word what is unique about Christian freedom. Uh, so please pray with me, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Lord, the words of those, uh, that last song that we just sang, all glory be to Christ, his rule and reign we will ever sing. Lord, help us to do that through the preaching of your word this morning and the way that our ears receive it. Uh, may we be guarded and bound by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, so this morning, we're going to trace three particular characteristics to make Christian freedom unique. And for this first unique characteristic, we're going to be looking at verses 23 and 24 of chapter 10. So Paul is he's dealing with Christians in Corinth who have a very misguided sense of what their freedom is for, um, which, as I just argued, is kind of what's going on in our country right now, uh, a misguided sense of what our freedom is for. So let's look at the situation he's dealing with, starting in verse 23. Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So that phrase is put in quotes there, right? In your Bibles, if you see it, all things are lawful. Why is it in quotes? So the same phrase was used earlier in the letter, and what's apparent is that there were groups of uh, Christians going around in Corinth who were using this phrase as an excuse to use their freedom to essentially do whatever they wanted. Most scholars agree that this was like a little maxim or proverb circulating around the city at the time that was a, it was a misinterpretation of Paul's earlier teachings. And so the Christians in Corinth, they're running around saying, well, all things are lawful as a way of excusing their behavior. And their behavior was like pretty terrible. Um, if, if you've been attending Holy Trinity at any point for the last eight months, odds are you've heard about the pretty terrible behavior of the Corinthian church. They were committing adultery with their in-laws. Uh, they're suing one another in open court. They were not attending to the hungry and the needy. And they're, they're using the phrase, well, all things are lawful, as an excuse to do so. And it's not hard to imagine Christians in our day saying things like, well, it's a free country, or, well, only God can judge me as a really cheap theological excuse to gratify their own desires. All things are lawful, we like to say. And Paul's concerned. He's sitting down writing this letter thinking like, oh, oh my goodness, no. Like that's not what your freedom is for. That's not what freedom in Christ is for. Again, the Christians have a misguided sense of what their freedom is for. They think they've been freed to do whatever they see fit. They think they've been freed to, uh, for the right to live as they wish. And nothing else, like Epictetus said. 
They think they've been freed to have no kings but us. And many Christians today, you know, whether, whether we like to admit it or not, uh, myself included, we have a misguided sense or idea of what our freedom is for. And so for Paul, the only logical solution is to reassert to this church what, what is unique about Christian freedom, because they're confused. So let's take a look. What, what is the first thing he suggests is unique about Christian freedom? Look at your Bibles, verses 23 and 24. Point number one, Christian freedom is totally unique because it is not about you. Your freedom as a Christian is ultimately not about you. See what I mean? Verses 23 and 24, your freedom is not about you. All things are lawful. Paul is saying, well, sure, that may be technically true, but there's another principle. Not all, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. Sure, that may be technically true, but there's another principle. Not all things build up. Not all things are constructive for others. Not all things edify. And then he sums up those two points with, with a direct command, right? He says, let no one seek their own good, but the good of their neighbor. Christian freedom is not about you. Paul identifies the problem within Corinth, that their freedom in Christ is being misused for personal desires. And that perplexes him because doing so deny, denies the exact unique nature of Christian freedom, that it's not about you. Seeking your own good is not the first action step of Christian freedom. Seeking the good of your neighbor is the first action step of Christian freedom. And I'm guessing some of you might bristle a little bit at that. Like a, a rejection of rights might not fit your definition of freedom. Like that actually sounds totally antithetical to the idea of freedom itself. And candidly, I, I understand why it might bristle you, or why it bristles me, or why it bristles us, because if, if we as people of God are going to make a declaration that we are free in Christ, what Paul is saying here is that we also must rethink every single decision that we make through the lens of the person sitting next to you right now. But 98% of the time, like, we, we don't want to do that. We want to use our freedom just as an example, to spend and invest our money where we see fit. And we say, well, all things are lawful, right? But what's unique about Christian freedom is that it asks you to think about your investing and spending through the lens of the other. All things are lawful, sure, but is that expense or is that investment helpful to the single parent in your community that's trying to figure out how to make their next rent payment? We want to use our freedom to watch Netflix and watch shows that in some cases glorify unhealthy relationships or capitalize on and capture the essence of other people's pain. And then we say sort of hesitantly, like in a way to justify ourselves, yeah, well, all things are lawful, right? But what's unique about Christian freedom is that it asks you to think about your media consumption through the lens of the other. All things are lawful, sure, but is you watching that show beneficial to the way that you approach your own relationship? 
Does it, does it guard your own relationship? Or is it beneficial to the way that you think about relationships in general? Does it edify humanity? We want to use our freedom to vote how we please. This is like the most fundamental freedom in our country, to vote in a way that benefits our own future. And we say, well, yeah, of course, that's my right. All things are lawful. But again, what's unique about Christian freedom is that it places a big command at the top of your ballot that says, seek not your own good, but the good of your neighbor. And after seeking their own good, then yes, you can go ahead and vote. We have not been given freedom for ourselves to do as we please, which is remarkably different than just about every other definition of freedom in our culture that I could possibly think of. We have been freed, absolutely, for others. And some of us are sitting here thinking like, wow, that, that sounds terribly difficult. That sounds incredibly challenging. I don't, I don't think I could actually do that in practice. And I think the Apostle Paul would respond by saying, difficult? Challenging? Like, exactly. You get it. That's, that's why Christian freedom is unique. Because in a world confused as to what freedom is and how to act upon it, Paul's words to Corinth offer us a holy vision for our neighbors here in Chicago. Christians of Holy Trinity, you, you are free in Christ, but you are not free for yourselves. We are free to go and serve others by asking ourselves some of Paul's qualifying questions. Is this, is this helpful? Is my practice here beneficial? Lord, will this thing that I'm deciding on bring about the good of my neighbors? And if you still feel incredibly challenged or bristled by this idea, I'd like to suggest to you that it's actually pretty foundational to Christian teaching. Like, this isn't just a, a random tangent that Paul decides to go on in 1 Corinthians. Um, actually, here's how he wrote about this exact topic to a different church on this topic of freedom. This is from his letter to the church at Galatia in chapter 5. He says this to a different church in a different context. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only, there's a qualifier, a unique qualifier, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This was challenging for me. As Christians, we are known for being so eager to talk about what we are freed from. And we should be. Praise God, we are freed from sin, from death, from bondage, from darkness, from the law. But my charge to you all this morning is that we are motivated toward what our freedom is for, which is helping others benefiting others, serving others in love, seeking the good of others, your neighbor. As followers of Jesus, that's the unique nature of the freedom that we are called into, one that says, your, your good comes before mine, as difficult and as challenging as that may seem. And for Paul, it's actually not a suggestion, it's a command. Are we, as Christians, willing to heed that difficult 
challenging command. And in doing so, show our neighbors what is distinct and unique about Christian freedom. I read, uh, I read an amazing story recently about two British explorers who set out in the 1860s to find the source of the Nile River in East Africa. And one of the essential members of their traveling party was a freed ex-slave, a man named Bombay. And Bombay served as their travel guide throughout East Africa on this expedition. Bombay had gained his freedom many years prior, so now he operates on this trip as a freed man. He has his freedom. And as this traveling party is gearing up for their expedition on the island of Zanzibar, they notice that Bombay purchases his own slave in one of the few places of the world at the time where the slave trade was still legal. And one of the British explorers, Richard Burton, he's super puzzled by this. It doesn't make sense to him. And so he wonders out loud why Bombay would do such a thing. And this is what he writes next in his journal. Upon purchasing him, Bombay immediately freed the man named Mabruki. Bombay treats this man better than he does his own self. Bombay shows not just kindness to him, but deep affection, referring to him as brother. This man, Mabruki, has no qualifications worthy of attracting one's affections. He is depressed and surly, then fierce and violent. Yet it would seem that Bombay has chosen to understand the fellow, knowing what it means to be enslaved, and is thus warmly attached to him. Bombay demonstrates for us an archetype of Christian freedom. He is a man freed not for himself, but for someone else. Seeking not his own good, the book goes on to say that when uh, they were cooking meals around the campfire, Bombay would forfeit his rations so that Mabruki could have additional food. Seeking not his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Imagine with me for a moment. What if that example were the picture of freedom that every citizen in our country saw from the Christians? What if that was the picture that America saw from every single Christian that they interacted with? What if those of us who still follow Jesus were relentless in promoting this unique characteristic of Christian freedom? Our cultural moment and our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors and yes, our own selves. We're struggling to know what freedom is and we're trying to find a more certain picture. You all are free people. As Paul says, all things are lawful, but being free is not about you. Christian freedom is not about you. It's not about us. Let us use our freedom for the sake of others. And you're probably sitting there thinking like, wait a second, wasn't a huge chunk of this passage about food laws and conscience and stuff like that? Isn't this a, a passage about how to be polite at the neighbor's dinner table? Fair enough. Let's move on to verses 25 through 30. Um, we're going to answer the second, or talk about the second unique characteristic of Christian freedom. What's, what's unique about it? It's not about you and our second unique characteristic of the day, Christian freedom is not about rules. Let's reread those verses starting in verse 25. Paul says, eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If, if one of the believers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, 
eat whatever's set before you without any question raised on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, well, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced for that which I give thanks? So Paul's not trying to make a few suggestions about having good table manners here. Um, He is instead offering up that second unique characteristic of Christian freedom, and that is that it's not about rules. And so to illustrate that principle, he dives into an issue that has been perplexing the Corinthians. Um, In fact, the Corinthians thought that the Apostle Paul was actually wrong on this topic of food laws. And so what Paul suggests with this little case study of Christian freedom is that the church is still confused on how to use their freedom. Even after hearing it's not about you, they need to understand another way by which Christian freedom is unique. And Paul says, with this little example, Christian freedom is not about arbitrary rules. And I can already see uh, some of your heads starting to explode. Um, Ben, you mean to tell me that Christianity isn't about rules, like that's the entirety of the religion. I'm with you, and so I'm guessing you probably find your way, uh, or find yourself responding in like one of three ways to this principle. Um, One, maybe you're newer to Christianity, uh, or you're not a Christian at all, and you're thinking to yourself like, wait a second, every Christian I know is a rule follower to a T. Like, yes, it's about rules. Uh, The second person, uh, I, I found myself falling in this bucket quite a bit, over the last couple of weeks, maybe you've been a Christian for quite some time and and you're thinking to yourself as you hear me like, oh boy, here we go. It's one of those super progressive reminiscent of a YouTube video talks that says Christianity isn't about rules, this is about a relationship. Um, And you've got me on on high alert with a little red dot over your head, I see you. Um, And then the third person is uh, someone who's sitting there saying, wow, Like, that makes so much sense, Ben. I totally agree. Christianity rejects legalism and offers us the freedom to proceed with the power of the Holy Spirit to love our neighbors in a discerning, flexible way. That makes so much sense. Um, All three of those reactions are reactions I've had at different points in time over the last couple of weeks. Let me tell you why person number three uh, is right, and we're going to entertain their thoughts for this afternoon. John Tyson is a pastor in Manhattan. Uh, He's a leader who I think is especially adept at navigating the complex, seemingly gray areas of living life as a Christian that the Bible doesn't exactly spell out. And here's what he had to say about legalism, rules, and freedom. Legalism, he says, is simple because it prioritizes principles. But freedom and compassion are complex because they prioritize people. Paul is likewise asking the followers of Jesus in Corinth to prioritize people over principles. And that means embracing an often complex path of Christian freedom. Uh, When I suggest to you that what makes Christian freedom unique is that it's not about rules, I'm suggesting what John Tyson is suggesting, that it rejects legalism. So let's examine how Paul unpacks this. Last week, Sully talked about idolatry because believers in Corinth, they had all sorts of questions about food laws uh, that were sacri- or, uh, food that was sacrificed to idols in pagan temples. 
And then earlier in chapter 8, Paul's addressing the same issue, and he's, he's actually very clear on it. He says, do not eat food sacrificed to idols in the temple because it will cause your brother to stumble. So he's, he's very clear on that. Do not. That command was an absolute. But now the believers in Corinth are asking for more rules regarding the issue of purchasing food in the marketplace um, because they want a firm line drawn in the sand of this or that. They want to know exactly how much they are permitted to do regarding this seemingly gray area of Christian freedom, which sounds like a lot of us, doesn't it? How many of you have asked the Holy Spirit this question before? Lord, exactly how much am I permitted to do regarding this seemingly gray area of life? We ask ourselves this question in response to about a thousand different situations we're faced with every single day in Christian living. And what Paul is concerned about, and what we should all be concerned about this morning, is are we becoming legalistic with this way of thinking? Legalistic folks are not free. Legalism does not make our freedom unique. In fact, it makes our freedom just like any other freedom out there. It's a freedom with very specific rules. And before I go on with this, don't mishear me. Um, of course, there are matters and situations within Scripture that are absolutes, this or that, correct and incorrect ways of living. But Paul is very intentionally using this little case study of buying food in the marketplace as an example. What do we do in those moments when there is not a correct or incorrect way of living? How are we to proceed when an encounter or a situation in life isn't clearly spelled out by God's word? What makes our freedom unique in those moments? Christian freedom is unique in that it does not adhere to legalism when it comes to our conduct. It's not about rules. Let's unpack this. Paul says in verse 25, look guys, you can eat whatever is sold in the meat market. Why? What's his, his rationale? Because it's already God's. So he quotes uh, Psalm 24, which says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So that matter for Paul is settled. But he goes on in verse 27. He says, all right, here's the example. Let's say an unbeliever invites you over to their house. You do not need to go over to the house, uh, the host of the house, and say, like, hey, excuse me, was this food butchered by that pagan in the meat market? Paul is saying, no, the food is already the Lord's. There's, there's no absolute rule here. But then he also anticipates the objection from the Corinthians. He says, and let's even presume for a second that the opposite is true, that someone present is actually concerned about the food being eaten because it has been offered and sacrificed. He says, okay, fine, then, then don't eat it. Not for your own sake, but for the sake of that person there and their own conscience. So in this little moment, at this little hypothetical dinner table, Paul contends that Christian freedom is not defined by a specific rule or legalistic principle. Christian freedom is actually designed, it's defined by rejecting that as an evangelistic effort to be used in a flexible way for the sake of the other person there. The church of the present day, we all, uh, are much like the church of Corinth in many ways. Our hearts, my heart, is a legalistic heart. Uh, we want to create an arbitrary rule about food laws. 
And Paul senses that our hearts crave legalism. It's so much easier for us to be the judge and declare ourselves righteous by adherence to whatever legalistic principle we create. Like John Tyson said, it's much more simple to be legalistic. But as Christians, we have to be careful not to use our freedom to impose unbiblical rules and restrictions on ourselves or other people. Because if we are insistent on creating legalistic parameters that God's word does not define, we are totally missing the uniqueness of freedom in Christ. Another pastor from New York named Tim Keller, I guess the folks in New York do have good things to say, said that, this is what he said about Christian freedom. He said, renewal is needed in our Christian practice because Christians so easily fall away from a full understanding of the gospel into cheap grace or legalism. Legalism and cheap grace are, and rules, these things that we create, they're not our aim as Christians. And we're, we're so enamored with imposing our own rules and what we think is best as these moral absolutes of Christian doctrine. But Paul exposes that for what it is with this example. It's, it's legalism. And God gives us a conscience, Paul says, that by the power of the Spirit, we can freely discern what kind of behavior would be helpful or building up for those around us in those situations where we don't know what the exact answer is. And what I really just appreciate about this case study on freedom is that it actually acknowledges there are situations in life and in Christian living that are not so precise. Uh, situations that are not absolutes, uh, this or that. And, and Paul is challenging the Christians, and I think he's challenging us this morning to a higher principle in these moments. Rather than what exactly is the right answer, the higher principle is your boundary is love. Loving God, loving his holiness, loving your neighbor, loving their good. In these moments, we maintain the first principle that Christian freedom is not about you, but we also add a new principle that Christian freedom is not about arbitrary rules. Think for a moment about the differences between jazz music and classical music, or the differences between baking and cooking. Classical music and baking, those are like incredibly precise things. You have to be super particular with the notes you play in classical music, and you have to follow the directions down to the exact ounce in the ingredients with baking. Rules are of utmost importance when you're baking or playing classical music. But jazz music and cooking, those are full of freedom and flexibility. Of course, any great jazz musician or sous chef will tell you that there are parameters you must stay within that guide your music or your meal. Within jazz music, there are seven major chords, but within it, immense freedom and room for improvisation. Within gourmet cooking, there are essential building blocks, salts, fats, acids, heats. Raise your hand if that's your Bible. It's mine uh, in the kitchen. But within those boundaries, there is a ton of freedom and room for creativity. 
And within Christian living, there are filters and restrictions that we ask ourselves. Paul acknowledges that. Is this biblically outlined? Is this helpful for others? Is this beneficial for others? Does my conscience in partnership with the Holy Spirit permit me to do this thing? But within those boundaries, there must be ample room for freedom and gospel agility when interacting with others. Brothers and sisters, I want to urge us toward jazz music or gourmet cooking when it comes to our Christian freedom this week. We've we've got to reject unnecessary rules that God has not outlined by his word. We've got to reject our desire to have a legalistic heart, which really we do that just so we can reassert ourselves as the judge, as right. I think so many of us would say that our heart's tendency is actually toward legalism. We want to say and do the right things to prove that God loves us. Many decisions that we're, make, uh, we're making in the world are met with all sorts of fear of condemnation or judgment. We're on one hand constantly fearful of what other Christians are going to think when we do one thing, and then on the other side we're constantly fearful of what our unbelieving friends will think when we do another thing. We are, we are so bound by rules and legalism. But Christian freedom is bound by God's love and a restricted love of others. When we reject unnecessary rules and legalism, we find the unique freedom that God gives us to make a beautiful piece of jazz music or a delicious gourmet meal that we can put before people. That beautiful piece of music or delicious meal is the very love of God at work within us. May we use our freedom in that kind of wise, loving, discerning way that builds up others. We cannot be notorious for creating imperatives and demanding that people adhere to them as a qualifier for freedom in Christ. Such an uh, an ask is, is actually not freedom. It's it's legalism. We must be notorious for directing people toward God's loving and gracious rule. This is true freedom in Christ. And so before we finish our time, uh, there's one last unique characteristic of Christian freedom. Uh, We know so far that it's not about us. We know so far that it's not about rules and legalism, but many of you are probably sitting here thinking, like, are there any characteristics of Christian freedom that are positively asserted? Like, is is there anything about Christian freedom in the affirmative? And uh, it's my opinion that in a land of 330 million different definitions of freedom, this particular qualifier is the one that Christians ought to band uh, together behind and, and just get a big old megaphone and proclaim this last qualifier of Christian freedom loudly. Christian freedom is about the glory of God. We were not freed for ourselves, and we certainly were not freed by Jesus for rules, thank God, but we were absolutely freed to showcase his unique, distinct, all-powerful, merciful, gracious, wonderful, beautiful, radiating glory. Our freedom is for the glory of God. And that is a freedom that we need to let reign. Go to chapter 10, verse 31, through chapter 11, verse 1 in closing. I'll read it again for us. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Suppose for a moment that you had a friend who was trying to convince you uh, that you should drop everything in life and go be an astronaut and join a space colony on the moon. I think outer space is terrifying, so I would be very hard to convince. Um, but imagine with me for a second that when you sit down with this friend for the first time, they're, they're laying out on the coffee table for you all of the complex math equations that make up the rocket launch codes in an effort to convince you to come on this trip with them. And they're telling you about all the aerodynamics and astrophysics of outer space, some potential meteors that might hit the rocket ship, but like probably won't. You'd probably be sitting there thinking, this does not sound all that interesting. Like I, I will probably not join this trip, thank you. And oftentimes as Christians, I think that's how we express and act out our freedom before others. But imagine that instead. This friend paints a picture for you of what it will be like the moment that you land on the moon. And they describe to you what it would be like to step out onto lunar ground for the first time. And you look out to your right and you see the earth spinning in all its blue and green wonder and your, your mind is blown and, and all the stars and the galaxies now for the first time just seem right within arm's length. And they describe to you that this is the end goal. This is what you'll feel. The final destination, the glory and the majesty of what it would feel like to land on the moon. In this final section, Paul is asking the church at Corinth to exercise their freedom in a way that helps people understand the goal. The final destination. Landing on the moon, which is the glory of God. And, and it's here we move from the small-minded, us-centric, legalistic principle of saying, well, all things are lawful. We move from that to the infinite, God-centric, holy and beautiful principle of saying, you know what, no, not anymore. All things are lawful, all glory to God. Look, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever it is that you do, all of Christian freedom, the freedom that Jesus has secured on your behalf and mine, do it with the glory of God as your end goal. And uh, in a world that claims so many different endpoints of freedom and gets caught up in all the aerodynamics and astrophysics, Christians must proclaim God's glory, his throne room, as the unique endpoint of our freedom. Compared to God's glory, all the other freedoms had not even made it out of the atmosphere. Therefore, all of our earthly activity must lead others to the logical conclusion that there is a God who has freed the Christians, not for themselves, but for others. Not because of legalism, but because of grace. Our freedom can give the world a direct pathway to the glory of God, at whose right hand is Jesus, the one whom we give the world, a, a big old picture of him, we imitate and we follow because his life was perfectly not about him. That's why Paul says we can imitate Christ. So Paul's saying, imitate me. I'm trying to imitate Christ. His life was perfectly not about him. 
His life was perfectly not about rules or legalism. His life was perfectly about bringing glory to God, his Father. And so because we have Jesus as the picture, we do not have a moving target as we aim for that end goal. Jesus, the risen king, is eternally fixed at the right hand of the Father. So where the world is promoting a freedom that says, no kings but us, let freedom reign. The Christians band together and promote a freedom that says, one king named Jesus, in his freedom, we are free. Come be free with us. What's unique about Christian freedom is that when it imitates Jesus, it brings glory to God. And uh, when we imitate Jesus, practically speaking, we imitate someone who never once sought his own advantage. But instead, he sought the advantage of many, you and I included, that we might be saved. Seeking the good of our neighbors and rejecting legalism is so that human beings might see Jesus and be saved. It's an effort full of grace, which will bring glory to God. And don't you think our city could use that kind of freedom? A unique recipe that Jesus followed perfectly never leveraging freedom for himself, never disguising freedom as legalism, using his freedom to bring glory to Yahweh, God the Father. Uh, the famous Russian author Leo Tolstoy said this. I, I thought this was so pointed, especially with the song we just sang too. He said, there are people in the world who profess an external law like someone standing in the light of a lantern fixed to a post. It's light all around them, but there's nowhere further for them to walk. But then there are people who profess the teaching of Christ, like someone carrying a lantern before them on a long pole. The light is in front of them, always lighting up the ground and always encouraging them to walk further. If you finish today thinking, man, Christian freedom still sounds really hard, remember, we have Jesus, a light, always in front of us, illuminating the ground and encouraging us, walk further in freedom. We can imitate him because he, he knows it was hard. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with our griefs who said, behold, I'll be with you till the end of the age. That's what Christian freedom positively asserts. So what do you and I get to do? in all the nuance and gray area of life, where we wonder, like, what in the world are we supposed to do with our freedom? Your end target is not a moving one. What will glorify God? Whether we eat, or whether we drink, or whether we work, or whether we speak, or whether we think, or whether we invest, or whether we act, or whether we buy, or we teach, or we vote, or we laugh, or we spend, or we abstain, or we advocate, or we cry, whatever it is you do, the glory of God is the endpoint of your freedom. And this isn't an, uh, it's not an intellectual exercise either. Um, I'll finish with this. Very simply, folks, Christian freedom says, do it. Go do it. Christian freedom says, be. Go be imitators. Do all for the glory of God. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So when you walk out that door today, 
Do all for the glory of God. Be imitators of Jesus, who is the very glory of God. What you know about your freedom must inform what you do with your freedom. Walk out that door today and tell the world about a unique freedom, one that's not about you, it's not about rules, but it follows the reigning king of the universe named Jesus for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we find ourselves a free people this morning because you, by the blood of your son, have set us free. You have loosened our chains and we sit before you this morning as a people with a clean slate, totally free in Christ. Now God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, please empower us, embolden us, and motivate us toward the activity of freedom. Help us to do all to your glory and to be imitators of your son, Jesus. Amen.